Hey, Green Future Growers! Welcome to Season 3. I'm your host, Jackie Marie Beyer. If you're new to the show, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes for free or follow on your favorite podcast app. And let's get growing! Hey, everyone! This is Jackie Marie Beyer, your host, here to help inspire you on your journey to create, grow, and enjoy a green, organic oasis. So let's get growing. Welcome to the Green Organic Garden Podcast. It is Tuesday, July 20th, 2021. And I have an awesome guest on the line from Sunset Sunset Lake CBD. Here is Sam Bellavance to share his journey, their business, and just all the cool things that are going on in 2021. So welcome to the show, Sam. Thanks for having me, Jackie. I really appreciate it. Oh, well, I'm excited to share your business and your story and just everything you guys have going on. So go ahead and tell listeners a little bit about yourself. You guys are in Vermont. Are you yep. in, you said up by um, you, the University of UVM Burlington, is that right? Yeah, we're about 30 minutes outside of Burlington in the Champlain Islands. So Lake Champlain... Uh, which is the border between Vermont and New York, our farms located uh, on some of the islands between there. Uh, so it's very scenic and we're only about 30 minutes from Canada. So we're at a pretty, pretty high latitude. And we're, um, so my background is in dairy farming. My family is one of the main producers for Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Um, so that's kind of my introduction to farming was working at the dairy uh, you know, throughout my childhood and, and into my adulthood. Uh, and in 2018, we decided to diversify the dairy farm a little bit. And uh, originally we tried growing hops, that didn't work out. And then we decided to grow hemp. And uh, that's been a, a big success. Uh, so that's one of the things I can talk about today is just that transition as a farmer um, from dairy to hemp, some of the things that were the same, some of the things that were different and uh, just kind of how adding some more crops to our farm uh, was a big key to our success. Well, let's just go right there. Go ahead and keep telling us that story. Yeah, so uh, I think for us at the, the dairy level, and I'm sure some of your listeners, if they're familiar with dairy farming themselves or friends, uh, it's always been a, a very, very hard way to make a dollar. Um, it's a lot of work. You're milking cows, you know, 365 days a year, you know, even Christmas morning, those cows have to get milked. Um, and it's just a, a wild amount of work for um, quite little money, just given the fact that, uh, you know, with dairy farming, you're so subject to commodity prices. And, you know, if there's a big supply glut, then prices get driven way down and, uh, every now and then they go up and then every farmer gets more cows and then the cycle kind of repeats. Um, so one of the things for me growing up there was kind of looking, okay, dairy is such a roller coaster. Um, but Ben and Jerry's, who's actually making the ice cream, they seem to be doing well and growing every year and kind of making that connection in my head. Okay. Part of the reason they're successful is because they're not just selling this commodity. They're actually taking, uh, taking the milk, creating a product with a brand and an identity, um, really focusing on quality, focusing on good sourcing and expanding throughout the world. So kind of my idea was, why don't we try to do something similar to what Ben and Jerry's has done with milk with our hemp? Um, and that's kind of how Sunset Lake CBD was born. All of our products are actually made with hemp. We grow uh, on our farm, so it's all single source. And we've been able to uh, ship ev to every state in the country, um, Puerto Rico, even some military bases overseas. Um, so we've, we've definitely grown quite a bit out of our, our humble Vermont origins. Oh, there's so much about this. I love Sam, especially I feel like you're probably giving a lot of my listeners hope, like this huge sense of hope that maybe they can make a successful business out of something that they love and something that they want to do and something that's good for our planet. 
um you know because the story of like the farmers have struggled for so much and you're turning you know flipping that and also doing it like i love the premium product that you're providing and that it's a quality and that you're seeing how and looking at what ben and jerry's did so i'm curious like what happened with the hops why didn't that work was it like your climate or like the market or like what what's making the hemp successful that the hops wasn't successful well i i think uh anyone who's being honest would tell you that uh, success is born of lots of failures and the hops kind of took it on the chin and a lot of the failures um that i made with the hops were tough lessons that i learned and then use those to make the hemp more successful so for example with the hops we were like okay we're just going to get these varieties um, that grow really really well in eastern and southern oregon where it's extremely dry and we're going to grow these varieties in vermont well the thing is our climate here is completely different it's much wetter um, much more humid and so our hop was just we're constantly battling all kinds of mildew and fungus. And, um, you know, with our hemp, we were much more selective about what kind of varieties we want to get, creating spacing that allowed airflow to get through there, even using um, types of beneficial bacteria to combat the fungus. So that was something where it kind of hit us on the head with the hops, but having that kind of tragic experience um, is what motivated us to do a better job with our hemp. And you're right to the market, like the, you know, we thought, okay, we're gonna grow these hops and some brewery is gonna show up and say, hey, you know, we've got a dump truck full of cash. We're gonna buy all your hops from you. Well, it doesn't work that way. You need to actually get out there and market it. So for our, our hemp and our CBD products, you know, instead of just keeping all the hemp in our garage and waiting for someone to show up, we said, hey, let's actually take this to the final stage, you know, make uh, the CBD oil, make the salves, um, make pre-rolls, make all of these products that we can then market ourselves. Um, so those were tough lessons, but I'm, I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, like you have to, even out of failure, you can draw some pretty good lessons that'll help you in the future. Yeah, but there's something special about you, Sam, that like made you figure out how to make those because like, let me tell you, I have failed over and over and I still like, I don't know, there's like, I don't know if I'm not putting the right lessons together <laughs> or like not learning or in other ways, I feel like I, I have moved forward in a lot of ways. So I don't know. But um, so it wasn't necessarily the hops itself it's just like the hemp you've you and it's so interesting that like most people think of oregon as being really a wet you know pacific northwest you know kind of like seattle rainy all the time but eastern oregon is a very different climate i guess if it's more dry i know a lot of um apples are grown in like northeastern oregon and south southern washington there and that little area it must be like that kind of climate the eastern part yeah i i've uh only been to oregon once but it does seem like whether you're east or west of the cascades um that's kind of the big difference and uh versus vermont is just so wet and it's really nice because we don't have the water supply issues that a lot of the other country has um and even for us like a uh, what we consider a drought would probably not even be considered a drought in, uh, you know, Western or Southwestern U.S. Um, but, you know, with that comes a lot of challenges. You know, we have special pests, special fungus. And um, so you take the good with the bad. So another thing is like you're a relatively new business in the in the, you know, grand scheme of things. And but yet you are being successful getting out there and marketing and then doing these new products. Like, have you had some products that you feel like are doing better than other? And didn't you tell me like when we did our kind of like chat the other day that do you have like 18, tell us about your farm. Did you, did you say you have 18,000 hemp plants? We do. Yeah. There's, there's 18,000 plants in the field right now. Um, 
And how big is, is your field? Uh, that's 35 acres. Um, so that's actually pretty spread out in terms of planting density for hemp. And just one thing I think that would be uh, really good to clarify for the listeners. Uh, I think a lot of people, when they think of hemp, they think of rope and the fiber and making hemp clothing. That's the same plant, but it's a different breed. Our breed is grown to produce buds and flowers that are really, really high in CBD and low in THC. Now I've also grown hemp that is for fiber and textiles, and that's a much longer, skinnier plant. They're like 14 feet tall. And um, with those, you're harvesting the stalk, not the flower. So a lot of times when we say hemp, people think of, oh, it's the fiber, it's the clothing, it's hempcrete, um, or, oh, it's CBD. They're the same plants. They're just bred for different purposes, um, which is one of the really cool things about the cannabis plant is you can do so many unique things with it. You know, it can either be a building material or it can be a supplement. Um, for us, we chose to go with the CBD route um, just partly because the hemp fiber industry isn't as developed in the U.S. as it is in like Canada or China. Um, and we don't necessarily have to, to do like a full hemp fiber processing, like taking the plants to the point where you can make a t-shirt, you're going to need millions and millions of dollars uh, to, you know, basically build a factory to do that. Um, versus us, like harvesting the buds, drying them, extracting the oil. It is very time expense. It takes a lot of time and uh, it does take money, but it's not at that scale. You know, these are things we can do in a, in a small little warehouse. Um, so for us, the most popular product has been, uh, you know, the CBD oil and the gummy bears, um, which are primarily used by people uh, before bed um, to help with falling asleep. And then they're also used um, just for like general anxiety, calmness. Uh, CBD, what's really nice about it is you get that relaxing feel that you would get from smoking marijuana, but you're not getting the psychoactive high. So you're much more functional. Um, so it's a really nice supplement for people who want to relax, uh, but don't want to, you know, be stoned. Um, so for us, uh, to shipping these products because they're small, uh, we've been able to market them all online, uh, sunsetlikecbd.com. And that's been cool to, uh, just mail them all over the country from our farm. So it's sunset, sunset lake CBD, S U N S E T L A K E CBD.com. Yep. And they can order them anywhere. And I, you sent me a sample package that I just got last night. And I'm so excited. Like I was telling you in the pre-chat, I love the lotion already. Like I put that on before I even finished. I even love like the paper it was wrapped in. I like unfolded all the paper and I'm like, I'm going to sketch on this paper. So that was also like super cool about it because it didn't come with like all these super plastic you know, things that I'm like, oh, what do I do with these or popcorn things? Like I was like, I'm going to take this paper and draw sketches down in the garden because it's really pretty paper. We'll go good with colored pencils or like a pastel chalk type of thing or something. You know, Jack, I have a story about that paper if you want to hear it. I would love to hear that. So that was a big lesson for us is learning um, from our customers, which I think is a really big thing if, if anyone whether it's farming or any type of small business, if you want to be successful, you have to take feedback. And we had a customer early on because uh, we were packing everything and packing peanuts. And they said, hey, you know, if you want to talk about sustainable agriculture and, you know, being sustainable, how about you don't fill up all your boxes with packing peanuts and you're shipping our products? And we were like, oh, that's a really, really good point. Um, so then we switched to just using that uh, recycled craft paper, um, which is much, much easier to recycle. And it's actually made from post-consumer paper. And, and uh, so that was just a lesson of like being humble and being able to take a lesson. And none of the bottles were cracked or broken. And the other, but the other thing I loved about it was like, they were actual square rectangles that I could reuse. They weren't like 
ripped up paper that I would never be able to reuse again. And so, like I said, I like folded them out neatly and I'm like, I'm going to draw on these because it's just, it's just a nice quality from an artist's perspective. It's a nice quality paper. And, uh, and that is true. Like that's part of why I mute my mic because I've gotten so many reviews that say the host just never stops talking. And so I've been trying so much harder this year not to talk as much, which is weird because I've spent more time in my garden. I feel like I have more to say because I can actually talk about what the person like what I, cause when I first started my podcast, I didn't really garden at all. And then this year, especially after the pandemic, I've really been gardening. Plus I even started this little like business this summer called local organic lawn care, where I thought I was going to go mow people's lawns, but instead they're like, Oh, can you weed eat my, you know, flower beds? Or can you actually, the biggest job I got was like planting this woman's greenhouse and landscape. <laughs> I'm like, your greenhouse is way over my grade scale. You know, I don't know what to do in there, but her landscape on the other side, I, I've never felt so confident, like in telling her what the, the things to do, probably because Mike and I have been building ours for 20 something years. Anyway, Mike's giving me the signal. You're talking too much again. So back to you, Sam. So tell us like, so how did you figure out what varieties grew better in Vermont? And then um, what was I, I was going to ask you something about explaining uh, about the different, because one thing I did read the statistic the other day about cotton actually uses like an incredible amount of water to grow a t-shirt like the amount of water in to grow a t-shirt as compared to like grow a watermelon is like 1500 gallons compared to like two gallons to grow the watermelon or something and I was just like oh my goodness and I know hemp doesn't need as much water to grow so it's put me back on the we want to find out more about growing hemp for textiles and fiber, but. Yeah. And that's something curious about as well. Um, but I just want to make clear, like, that's not what we're doing. Um, so when someone says they're growing right. hemp, that could mean a lot of different things. It could mean growing hemp for textiles. It could mean making hempcrete um, with those you're using the stalk of the plant, you're actually using two different parts of the stalk, the herd and the bass. Um, versus for us, we're focusing more on the flowers, which if you think of like traditional cannabis marijuana, what people are smoking are the flowers of the plants. Um, Cause that's where the THC is. In our case, that's where the CBD is. So that's the part we're targeting. And uh, for us- when no, we're I did wanna know about that. Like is the CBD in the leaves and the stock and everywhere, or it's only in the buds? There's the very, very small amounts of it on the leaves. There's almost none on the stalks, and the vast majority of it is in the buds. Um, so that's the part that we want to harvest. And is there like, cause I know like I've talked to some marijuana growers here in Montana, especially since in January, um, we legalized it for recreational use here in Montana. It just seems like the first two weeks, our phone was ringing off the hook. And I was like, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> and people were asking all about like, how do we grow this? How do we sell this? What do we do now? But, and then they're already changing regulations and crazy stuff here. Um, in Montana, like it went from like, if you have a medical marijuana card, you can grow four plants to now you can only grow two plants if you don't have it for recreational use. But like from what I've gathered from the growers is that getting buds is, is quite, uh, or the flowers is, is quite a challenging process. There's like the whole, you got to cover it up thing and you've got to keep them at a certain 86 degree temperature and like there's all the are there the same challenges with the cbd and is it as hard to get you know everybody talked about weed is so easy to grow it grows like a weed but it's it's not that and you were telling me something about what was it you have to go out and look for the seeds because it's also like you have to have that feminized yeah so i would say it's it's 
easy to grow. And um, again, whether it's hemp for CBD or it's, um, you know, recreational or medical cannabis to get you high, it's all the same plant, um, cannabis sativa or cannabis indica. So the characteristics are pretty similar. And for us, what I always say is it's very easy to grow. It's hard to harvest and uh, harvest and preserve a quality product. So I could throw some seeds in my backyard and they might grow, but are they going to get seeded down? Are they going to get filled with insects? Are they going to experience mold or mildew? Um, that's the part that's much, much more difficult for people. And I think when Vermont, when we first saw the big hemp CBD boom, where there was 3000 acres in 2018 of hemp planted. And I had all these farmers saying, oh, you're, you're only planting 12 acres. Well, I'm planting 50. And another farmer said, I'm planting 100. And, other plant and they were all focused on how many acres they're planting. And really the question is, okay, well, how many acres can you harvest and dry? Because you can plant 100 acres, but if you can only harvest and dry five acres, you're a five acre farm, you're not a hundred acre farm. So that's when I think people got ahead of themselves being like, okay, I'll just throw these seeds in the ground, they'll grow. Not really realizing that the harvesting process is incredibly labor intensive. You have to go out there with pruners and cut these buds off. Um, there are machines that do it, but they do a terrible job and the quality is really poor. Um, so if you want a good product, you're doing a lot of this by hand and, you know, to dry them, you're hanging them up in a, a warehouse or a barn or a greenhouse, which is what we use, um, drying them out. Uh, and what you are referencing too is the mail checking. Um, so if people don't know this, uh, the flowers that people consume with marijuana or cannabis are from the female plant. That's really, really important. Male plants, they don't produce flowers. And what's really bad is if the male plants, if they pollinate those female flowers, those flowers will fill up with seeds, uh, which first off, it makes the uh, CBD and the THC levels plummet. So you're gonna get way, way, way less oil from each and every plant. And if you're selling a smokable flower to like a dispensary, a head shop, no one wants buds that are filled with seeds. So it's really important for us to get out and we'll actually check each and every one of those 18,000 plants, probably three or four times, just to make sure that there are no male plants. In Do that four times a day? No, no, four times during the growing season. Yeah. And how long is the growing season? So for us, we will start our plants in greenhouses in little uh, one inch or you can do up to four inch pots. Uh, that's typically between May 10th and May 20th. They'll hang out in the greenhouses uh, for about three weeks. And then in mid-June, we'll transplant them into the field, uh, which is a lot of fun. I don't know if any of your listeners have used a a veggie transplanter, but you basically are sitting down on the back of this cart with a tray in front of you. And there's a wheel that's poking, uh, poking a hole into the ground, filling it with water. And you have to pop the plant out of the tray and then put it in the ground. Um, it's kind of a wild ride. And so that's in mid June. Um, the plants will start flowering. Wait, hold on a sec. You do that for 18,000 plants. Like how many people do you, I mean, how long does it take you? And like, do you, I mean, that must take days. Um, it took, it took four people about a week. So we don't have a huge, huge crew. Um, we have, but you anywhere... have a crew and I love that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, we, we have a crew and that's, that's really big. Um, and that's, uh, you know, part of us too, is just like, kind of breaking out of that mold of agriculture where it's like pay people as little, little as possible. Um, you know, for the kind of the beginning, I wanted to have a really motivated, dedicated team that would, you know, show up when they needed to show up, work hard, um, you know, be good ambassadors of our brand and 
part of that is, um, you know, for our farm workers, we have a minimum wage of 15 bucks an hour, um, which is uh, definitely quite a bit higher than the standard for, uh, you know, most vegetable pickers um, in the country. Um, but because of that, we were able to get some really, really good help um, to help get us through that season. And um, the other part of that too is because the window is so sensitive, like in, it'll be September 30th and we'll say, okay, we have five days to harvest these plants um, for like one specific variety. So we'll say, okay, we've got 2000 plants here. These have to get harvested within the next five days. Cause if we don't, they're going to get moldy and then we can't harvest them. We can't sell them. So for us having a team uh, and our harvest teams, usually about 15 people uh, that's really, really dedicated and shows up because there's no margin for error. If we don't have enough people, we're going to lose those plants. So how do you get 15 people that show up just at that for that one week? Um, so they're not there just for that one week. They're starting, our harvest starts about September 15th and it goes till the end of October because um, different varieties, and this is one of the things we learned. Um, and I guess this is really important for any type of vegetable farming, but for hemp, especially you want to pick varieties that ripen at different times. Cause if they all ripen at once, you're not going to have enough people and you're not going to have enough drying space to get them harvested. So we have some varieties that are ready to go in September, some that aren't ready till the end of October to kind of spread things out uh, throughout the harvest. And is that like your last frost day or is that after frost? Cause I know there was a guy who grew this big field of hemp down like on the road that goes out to the highway by our house. So I drive by his big field every day and September 8th, we got that killer frost last year and his whole crop. I mean, the next day you could just see it, like the whole thing changed color. And I don't know that it definitely like laid down on the ground, but within a couple of days it was down on the ground. And he, he said they were able to, cause I did just talk to him recently about it. They were able to send the product he had in the green the plants in the greenhouse they sent colorado and they were able to extract some cbd from it but all the stuff in the field he said he saved it and dried it but he still has for some reason they weren't able to sell that mm -hmm. and so he's not growing the hemp again this year but um like how uh what was my question again oh how frost affects it oh yeah your yeah, frost so like what's your frost date um, it depends for us. It's usually, um, you know, mid October. Um, so for so us, we will, frost. yeah, we'll harvest plants, um, after they've already seen a frost, uh, the plants, because at that point when we're harvesting them, they're already kind of reaching the end of their life cycle anyways. Um, and for us, it's kind of a tricky thing because we don't, you know, you wouldn't want a plant. Okay. It got a heavy frost. We're going to give it a week, then harvest it. That's too long. And you're going to see issues of mold. You're going to see pests in there. Uh, you know, it's already starting to die, but if, you know, we get a frost and then in the next two days we get out there and harvest those buds, they'll be okay. Um, and you actually notice with the hemp plants, when you, there's a really cold night, the flowers will become really dense and they'll kind of like pull themselves together as a way of protecting themselves. And so they do have some ability to handle frost. It's not, it's not a situation where it's like the end of the world if we get a frost, but uh, we also wanna make sure we're getting out there and harvesting as quickly as possible. And how do you harvest it? You said like you go out by hand, like do people have baths? Like one thing I've been talking to Mike about this year is one of my guests was talking, when you harvest food, 
your the basket you put the food in is not allowed to sit in the dirt like this was something a market farmer told me that i was like really i had no idea like are there rules about like harvesting hemp like that and like what do you guys like do you wear like a backpack like how do you harvest these buds? You said you're harvesting them by hand? Yep. So you're out there. Um, you have a 30-gallon uh, black plastic tote and some pruners. And you basically walk up to the plant, prune uh, between 12 and 18-inch uh, sections of flowers, and then lay those down in the tote. That tote is then transported um, to one of our greenhouses. Uh, which is a very like hot and dry environment. Um, and we want to get them, the second they get cut off the plant, they need to be hanging up drying, you know, within 15 minutes, ideally, um, you know, 30 minutes wow. maximum. Um, because for us, you know, when you cut it, you know, the plants had like 70, 80% moisture, you need to get it dried down, you know, below 20%, ideally around 10% for it to be stable. So you're not having issues of mold. So for us, uh, you know, getting them clipped and moved till drying as quickly as possible is important. And you're right. Some of those like basic sanitary practices, like with our totes, you know, we dunk them in a light bleach water solution just to keep them clean uh, you know, putting them upside down at the end of the day, you know, wanting to keep all of our materials, uh, you know, rubbing the pruners with rubbing alcohol to keep them clean. Uh, you know, we want to keep everything as sanitary as possible. Do you have to wear gloves? I'm so curious. Like, or you have to how do you even yeah. hang them? Do they have long stems or? Um, the flowers, what we do is we hang up trellis netting inside our greenhouses. And then Ooh. those like 12 inch sections of flowers, you can hang those on the trellis netting. So imagine like a fuzzy green wall of uh, hemp buds kind of floating around in the wind in there. Because the greenhouse is filled with fans. So there's a lot oh, of yeah, air movement. That too. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of heat, a lot of air movement. Um, to get those dried down as quickly as possible. Um, and that was really the big challenge for hemp farmers was the drying aspect. And that's something we put a lot of, you know, uh, and, and I don't, I won't get into all the numbers, but just for your listeners to know, like we put more money and time into setting up our drying than we did into the irrigation, into fertilizing the field, um, because we knew that you know, th there's nothing worse than growing a really big, beautiful plant and having no way to harvest and process it because then all of your work wasn't for anything. So that was kind of our focus. And I think that was definitely one of our keys to success was um, really planning out and investing in like a good drying setup. This is so awesome, Sam. You are just full of golden seeds. I know my listeners because that's true. Like I've been talking to people about harvesting, like whether you're harvesting, you know, sour cherries to make a pie or, you know, apples in the fall or somebody was asking me about my plum tree. What am I going to do with all my plums? Because my plum tree is just like packed with the plums this year. So I'm pretty excited about that. Like, what do you do with your heart? Or like, that's always our child. Like, I'm trying to figure out what can I do with all these radishes? We seem to have like a million radishes this year. I'm like, can I make horseradish out of this? Like horseradish, does it have to be the horseradish plant? Can I develop some kind of radish? And then like, so here talking about the hemp, although it's the other kind, because like I've always said, if I was going to make, my mom's always like, oh, Mike should sell his baked goods. I'm like, if I'm going to take a product to market, it's going to be my hemp seed oil salad dressing because I make the most delicious hemp seed oil salad dressing when I can afford to buy the hemp seed oil, which I know is really good for me. But yeah, it's that whole processing. How are you going to process it? How are you going to... Um, you know, do that. Like, how do you even process your oil so it's not made from the seeds, these tinctures, these oils, right? Because you mm -hmm. said that you're not growing seed. You have the female. I get so confused with this whole thing. Like, I'm just so baffled. Like, how do you even like plant these 18,000 plants if you're not planting from a seed? Or where do you get your seeds? 
Yeah, so the seeds we get um, from a couple companies, most of which are based in Colorado and Oregon. And um, those you can find if you just Google search like CBD seed companies, there's a zillion of them. Um, there for are us, like, it seems like when yeah. the hemp bill plus, like a few, when I first looked into this two years ago, you could only buy hemp seeds from these four companies in Canada. You can buy them from Colorado now. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. There's a bunch of places you can get them. And, uh, for us, you know, really, what was the question again? Oh, which is like, sorry, I asked like six questions. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That was all. <laughs> I'm trying to keep track of them all as you throw them at me, Jackie. Maybe, maybe try that one again. I know. And I'm taking notes and I'm trying to like keep the notes and look at my notes and, and then remember, what did I ask him? <laughs> did I lose you? No, 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 oh, no. Okay. I'm, uh, I, I think I asked about like, I, I get confused because like you're growing these feminized, you like have people going out there, you're looking to make sure there's no seeds, but then like, how do you plant your crop in the fall if you don't plant it? Got it, seeds? Got it, got it. And how do they make a feminized seed? Like, I just the whole thing confuses me. Sure, sure. So yes, um, so the plants, we're starting them from seeds. Um, and those are feminized seeds that we get um, from Oregon and Colorado. Those seeds are basically selected um, to be 99% female. Uh, as to how they do that, it's mostly through like seed, plant breeding techniques that I am frankly not an expert on. Um, so you might want to talk to a, a plant breeder who could get more into detail with that. Um, but like I said, like we're still going to go and check all those plants because even if it's 99% female, well, if you have 18,000 plants, that 1%, you know, you, you still got some male plants in there. So we're going to go and check them all anyways. Um, and at the end of the year, you know, we're harvesting the flowers and extracting the oil out of them. We do have to buy, we don't save seeds. So we do have to buy seeds each year. Um, now, some of our plants inevitably will have some amount of seeding in them. Uh, those seeds we wouldn't want to keep because they're not genetically stable anymore. So they might either have too much THC in them or they wouldn't be feminized anymore. And, and I've heard that people like that grow cannabis or marijuana, like they don't want any seeds anywhere near because like it can ruin your whole crop really quickly. Right. And exactly. like, so 1% of 18,000 would be like 180 and like 180 plants is probably hard to find. Cause it's not like there are 180 in one like row. It's like one here and one there and like one year. And how do you, how do you, uh, where do the seeds show up? Uh, like on the plant? Yeah. Like they, they I'm thinking of like an apple or like, yeah, a, they're in the you flower. Know, like a tomato, they're in the fruit. Like, how do you know, even if, a, because does a flower right in the beginning? I mean, do, does it make a difference? Like when you get the seeds out of there? Um, they flower, um, you know, right around mid-August. At that point, you can see pretty clearly pods starting to form in the flowers. And for ours, you know, all, our plants all have seed pods, but when you break them open, they're just empty because they haven't been pollinated by the male plants. Oh. Um, so that's really important for us, you know, hemp seed oil, which you were talking about for your salad dressing, that's more, that's a byproduct really of the fiber industry, um, where when they're growing hemp for making uh, clothing or making hempcrete, um, those plants will all be seeded down and you can harvest quite a bit of seeds from mine and it's a much more like large scale uh, industrial process to get the hemp seed oil. It's, it's not very similar to CBD farming where we're more like, I'd say it's, it's almost more like a vineyard um, kind of at our level of, of processing. Oh. 
that's a good that's a good analogy yep. so let's say we were because you're probably like needing to um get to the other stuff and i told you that this was only going to be 50 something minutes so like i can do another 10 minutes uh, so but i have this thing called like getting to the root of things which is kind of like a lightning round on other podcasts so like do you have a least favorite activity to do in your hemp farm or like something that you got to kind of force yourself to get out there and do uh least favorite activity probably weed whacking um because it's very time consuming and it's very boring and <laughs> it's just something that i've always wanted to get away from but i feel like it keeps keeps coming back to me so oh yeah this is what i was just going to ask you so like you know a lot of like people that i've been talking to talk about like diversity and having like you know a lot of these no-till farmers will have like you know pollinator Hello? crops are we see are we losing our zoom thing like are you like sometimes yeah, i feel like you're skipping out and i'm out a little bit um I was asking, like, do you get, do you have like any pollinator crop? Like, do you plant any flowers that learn beneficial insects that kind of help? Like, what do you do about pests? Yeah, so we cover crop with uh, red clover and white clover and timothy. And the nice thing, so that cover crop is planted between our rows of hemp. That's going to be fixing nitrogen, uh, basically from when it's planted in May. Uh, through harvest, that clover, while it's growing, is bringing nitrogen into the soil, which is really important for the hemp. Uh, you don't need pollinators for hemp because it pollinates through the air. Um, that being said, we do want to create an environment for beneficial insects. So the flower on the clovers and the timothy um, all makes like a really nice environment for ladybugs, which are very helpful for aphids. So this is one thing that I definitely want to get into. We identified our first year, the biggest pest for hemp is called the European corn borer. And it's a moth that lays its eggs on the hemp. And then its little uh, grub larva will punch into the stalk and eat its way up the stalk. Uh, and it does an immense amount of damage to the plants. Uh, it doesn't always kill them, but it will severely weaken them, which is uh, almost just as bad. And for us, we learned, because uh, we didn't want to spray, you know, I think a big part of why our brand's been successful is the pesticide free, you know, doing the cover cropping. Uh, so we were like, let's use beneficial insects. So what we do is we lay out these parasitic wasps that will then hatch and they attack the eggs of the corn borer. So we're using these wasps to attack the corn. And we've seen dramatically fewer uh, incidents of corn borer damage since we started using the wasps. And we don't have to spray any uh, you know, extra chemicals on the plants. So it's uh, definitely a win-win. And that's something I'd recommend any gardener is to uh, check out Airbico Organics. They sell beneficial insects and it's a really good fit uh, for a lot of folks. Awesome. Patty Armbruster did a whole, uh, um, like we did, we do this thing called Grow Live on Saturday mornings where she talked about those parasitic wasps. So if listeners want to like actually see what that looks like. And also the thing that I loved about it was she had this picture and it looked like the wasps were like this bug that you would want to get rid of. But she was like, this is actually the wasps doing their job eating. And so if you go watch that YouTube video, it's really cool because you can see them doing the work. And then also it makes you think, oh, I would have thought I want to get rid of these wasps where actually the wasps were eating the aphids and it was, um, anyway and uh can you spell that is it ai or, or what do you say they're who organics because oh, people ask me all the time where do i get beneficial insects sure sure it's airbico organics they're based out of phoenix arizona a r b i c o organics awesome all right back to the lightning round so your least favorite is weed whacking what's your favorite activity to do on your farm um harvesting 
Well, that was simple. Uh, how about, do you have any gardening advice or business advice? Like what's the best gardening advice or farming advice you've ever received? Ooh, uh, best gardening advice is always be preventative instead of reacting. So trying getting getting out ahead of problems and preventing them before they even occur rather than trying to react to problems, um, which is not always possible, but it's a, that's something I strive for. And that's awesome. What's your favorite tool? What if you had to move? Yeah, I don't in, know why that's happening. If you had to move and could only take one tool with you, what could you not live without? Uh, my favorite tool would be probably probably the transplanter. I just think it's so cool that you can put that many plants in the ground. I always figure too, if there's an apocalypse, then I can use the transplanter to uh, grow a bunch of veggies for myself. So um, that's got to <laughs> be my favorite tool. How about a favorite internet resource? Like where do you find yourself surfing on the web? Um, I mean, as far as like resources on the internet, I like to constantly check in on what the University of Vermont and uh, University of Cornell, which are like two really big ag schools near me, what they're doing for research. So I can go on their website and a lot of the seminars, a lot of their research is all public. So you can get access to really state-of-the-art uh, agricultural research and data uh, that's totally free and totally public. So if people have like a land grant university that's near them, um, you should check out what their extension school and what their uh, agricultural school has to offer um, because some of that data is really valuable and uh, it's totally free. And Cornell is one of the best ones for the whole country. And they have a huge bird uh, thing too. Yeah, they've got great stuff. A favorite book like uh it got any reading material you can recommend i don't know it's funny i actually i hate to admit it i don't do a lot of reading um because so much of my time is either on a tractor or at the farm or driving around i spend a lot of time just like listening to podcasts and like doing uh you know like every now and then yeah i'll dive into audiobook i Maybe I like a uh, like hardcore history. I like that history podcast. Um, I, I don't really listen to a lot of like farming podcasts just because I get enough of that in my own life. Um, so I mean, sometimes I like a nice long history podcast or um, something that I can kind of zone out with while I'm on the tractor. I finally saw that guy on TV and I was like, wow, he looks totally different than I was expecting. That's okay. <laughs> I hardly listen. I only listen to like two farming podcasts anyway. So yeah. I know. And in the beginning, I hardly listen to any, but, um, okay. Here's my final question. If there's one change you'd like to see the creative greeting world, what would it be? For example, is there a charity organization you're passionate about or project you'd like to see put into action? Like what do you feel is the most crucial issue facing our planet in regards to the environment, either locally, nationally, or on a global scale? Oh boy. Um, I would say, gosh, um, I'd say, and this is going to be a really big answer, but, you know, trying to get, uh, agricultural, trying to get agriculture divorced from really short term economic, uh, cycles and thinking, um, where I feel like, in my experience, farming, whether it was at the dairy or, you know, growing Sunset Lake CBD, um, I've seen a lot of farmers and a lot of companies kind of forced into this mindset of how do I make as much money as possible as quickly as possible? And, you know, everything about preserving the land, taking care of people in the community, all of that kind of gets thrown by the wayside. So, I would say for people to have more of a like hundred year mindset rather than a one year mindset, um, I think that would be really big. I, I think people would take much, much better care of uh, both farmland and the natural ecosystem if we kind of thought about these things as if they uh, were something that was worth preserving and that that has a value that you can't really put a dollar on.
Uh, Sam, thank you so much for sharing everything today. And listeners, I don't know if I mentioned this, but of course he's a rock star millennial. So, and you can just tell from that answer. And we just love all your passion and sharing for us. Tell listeners again, how do they get and connect with you? How do they order some CBD gummies and Petri? We didn't even talk about the Petri. Are there any things that you want to talk about that we didn't talk about before we hang yeah. up? No, we got it all pretty good. Um, I'd say, yeah, for people like check out our website, sunsetlakecbd.com. Um, again, for us, I think the, the thing that makes us stand out from other CBD companies is all of the CBD in our products is made from hemp that we grow ourselves. So you have full traceability. Um, you know, you're not, we're not using weird artificial CBD isolates that are made from some lab that you don't know who knows what where you know you go to our website and you know we're shipping stuff out um from vermont from our farm to your door um so check it out see we've got a bunch of different products on there um so there's something for everyone uh so try that out sunsetlakecbd.com thank you so much for sharing with us today you have a great day cool thank you jackie bye Get your copy of the Organic Oasis Guidebook available today from Amazon for just $26.95. And it's got 12 lessons designed to help you create your own organic oasis. Um, it starts with healthy soil. It talks about building an earth-friendly landscape. It helps you understand the difference between annuals and perennials and how to bring in beneficial insects. It talks about fruit trees and just... Um, all the lessons that I've learned on my podcast mixed with what Mike and I have done here. Okay. What Mike has done here at Mike's Green Garden. And just, um, I hope that it will help you on your garden journey, uh, to create, like I said, your own organic oasis, um, where you can have healthy food and enjoy, um, you know, a very special place. And most of all, it's good for mother earth. Do you know someone who would benefit from the Organic Gardener podcast? If you like what you hear, we'd love it if you'd share the Organic Gardener podcast with a friend. Thanks again for listening and remember, grow local.